Luke chapter 10 is where we will be this evening. We'll be focusing on the parable that starts in verse 25. But before we get there, just kind of want to give a little bit of background with this passage. Luke 10 starts off in verse 1 with Jesus appointing other 70 also. So he has his 12 main disciples, the 12 apostles, and he appoints 70 other disciples, followers of him, and he sends them two and two before his face into every city and every place whither he himself would come. So he's getting these followers and he is basically sending them out to these towns, to these cities, to these villages before him to prepare the way similar to what John the Baptist did. Verse 2, therefore said he unto them, so here's the message that he gives them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. So he's starting in this chapter and he's sending people out to give the good news of the kingdom. And that comes into play, I believe, into this parable. Because these 70 go out, they give the good news of the kingdom, they talk about, they tell about Jesus, they are able to do various miracles along the way. They come back, verse 17, to him with great joy, saying, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And so you have all of this going on, and that's when we get to verse 25 the start of this parable. So you have, I don't know if you have ever experienced this, but kind of a spiritual high going on. If you go through a week of camp where you have intense uh, time in God's word and you get back from that week at camp and you are just like on spiritual cloud nine, that's kind of where things are at right now. When we're introduced to, verse 25, this certain lawyer. Lawyers get a bad rep, don't they? Sometimes they deserve it. Scott Hoster's not here to defend himself. I wouldn't go toe-to-toe with him. I'd give it to him. But a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do? to inherit eternal life. So Jesus has sent these disciples out giving the good news of the kingdom and this lawyer has heard some of it and so he comes to Jesus and says, okay, what about me? What do I need to do? And he, Jesus, said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, so this is the lawyer's response, this is how we need to inherit eternal life. This is what I need to do. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. And we'll stop there. And I may be parked here longer than we actually discuss the parable. And I apologize if you'd rather spend more time in the parable. There is just a lot to unpack in this passage. This parable shows the importance of loving our neighbor. We recognize it, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it follows what we looked at at the beginning of the chapter, a text, a passage on mission. I don't think that there are any mistakes that God is making to put this parable about being a proper neighbor butting up to a passage on giving the gospel, sharing the good news of the kingdom. I think that it goes hand in hand for a reason. 
The section can be outlined basically with the dialogue surrounding two questions. So this lawyer asks question one, and we just looked at that one. And Jesus responds to him, and then he asks a second question. And Jesus responds. So what is this first question? You have a lawyer confronting Jesus, and when we think about lawyers today, we're thinking political expertise on the law. That's not the lawyers that we're looking at in the time of Christ. When we see lawyers confronting Jesus, these aren't Roman experts on the civil law. These are experts on the Jewish law. So these would be religious leaders. So we have an individual who outwardly is religious. This would be the guy who would be at the temple worshiping whenever he was supposed to be. If we fast forward 2,000 years, this would be the guy who's at church every time the doors are open. He's a religious individual. He knows the scriptures. And he's asking this question, what must I do to be saved? This isn't a question that would come as a surprise. This is a question that was commonly debated. You know, what do you need to do to get eternal life? In Luke 18, verse 18, we see a rich young ruler coming to Jesus and asking him the same thing. Master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments, honor your parents, don't kill, don't commit adultery. And he says, I've done those things. And Jesus says, okay, sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And that rich young ruler in Luke 18 goes, wait a second, I have a lot. And he goes away, the Bible records, sorrowful. This lawyer here in Luke 10, I don't believe, has the same motivation. He's coming to Jesus to test him. What do I need to do to be saved, to try to trap Jesus? And Jesus answers in a common rabbinic fashion. He answers in a way that I have sometimes been accused of doing myself. Something that I learned as a student, and I won't say I perfected, but developed further as a teacher when a student asks you a question just because they want the answer. Don't give them the answer. Ask them a question. Lead them to figure out the answer for themselves. I remember having a conversation with some people out um, in a church that we were at before, and the lady looked at me. She goes, you never answer my questions straight, yes or no. I said, the reason I don't do that is because if you ask a question and you think the answer should be yes and I say no, immediately that conversation is stopped. Instead, what I want to do is I want to walk you through the thought process so you can come to the right answer on your own. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's, it's a common teacher trick. You're an expert in the law. You tell me. What do you think the Bible says you need to do to be saved? And the lawyer responds, and he cites Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a passage that the Jews would have recited every morning. The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In verse 5 following, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. So that was a clear, easy one. And then he brings in Leviticus 19.18, where it says, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, I am thy God. To obtain eternal life, According to this lawyer, one must love the Lord with all that one is, with all of one's mind, heart, emotion, and will. In other words, God must be the supreme in our affections. And then love for one's neighbor is a natural outpouring of loving God. 
And this is a common answer that would have been discussed among the rabbinic circles in Jewish history, in Jewish sources. In fact, we see Jesus himself giving a similar answer. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Slightly different wording of the question, but it's the same answer. And what's Jesus' response? Love the Lord thy God with your all. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a common response. So according to this religious theological expert, to obtain eternal life, love God with your all, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is where we as 21st century Christians are going to say, Jesus should say no. To obtain eternal life, you need to put your faith and trust in him. But what's Jesus' response? If we can put it in a Pastor Brian paraphrase, absolutely, you got it. Now do it. If you do this, if you love God with your all, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will have eternal life. And we should have alarms sounding in our brains. Wait a second. That's not the gospel. That's not admitting that I am a sinner, recognizing that my sin is separating me from God and that Jesus came and died on the cross for my sin, repenting of that sin and turning to Christ in faith. That's not the gospel. So what is Jesus saying? If you do these things, you will live. This answer reflects Leviticus 18, verse 5, which says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. So this is God speaking to Israel. Which if a man do. So if someone is able to fully keep the law of Moses... Ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. He shall live. Contextually, that's a promise to having life in the promised land. But Paul takes that in Romans 10 and in Galatians 3 and equates that life to eternal life. So Jesus is somehow saying... If you can perfectly keep the law, you can have eternal life. If you love your neighbor as yourself, and we're like, okay, what does that mean? How can Jesus be saying, if we simply love, that's all you need? You know, we live in a culture, in a society that pushes that mantra. Love for all. Tolerance for all. To quote a couple of great theologians of the 20th century, all you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Or another great theologian, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. And don't worry, I will not sing them. (laughs) But that's what society is saying. And there are unfortunately many churches across this country who have reduced the gospel message to this. The message of Jesus' life is love. And on the outset, that statement is 100% true. When we think John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he did what? He gave his only begotten son. Jesus' ministry was the demonstration of God's love. But the problem we see when the gospel is presented as Jesus' life is love is, as one author puts it, love is like a greased pig. 
It's always there, but it's always elusive. A friend of mine used to counsel at a camp down south, and one of the activities that they would do with the teens is they would get a little pig, and they would lather that thing up with Crisco and set it loose. And whoever could catch the pig, their team won the game. And you think, all right, you have this little pig. How hard can that be? But you go to grab it, and it just pops right on out. I guess that would save a step. If you already have it greased, you can just toss it right on the griddle afterwards. But that's this concept of love that is being put out there. When you get to try to define it, okay, so what do you mean by love? Because love is a tricky term. Love can rightly refer to the sacrificial love of a parent for a child. And I look across this room and I see parents who have sacrificed for their kids. Love can also rightly refer to the faithfulness of a marriage partner. Now, my children will sometimes ask us to recount our wedding day. I don't know why they want to hear the story again and again and again. But the one thing that Stacy and I both agree on is that almost 12 years ago when we stood at the altar facing each other, pledging our love, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. We didn't know what love was. We were infatuated. To quote Thumper, we were Twitterpated. A friend of mine recently got married, and before he fell into the trap, I warned him. The greatest danger and difficulty in a marriage, it doesn't matter if you're saved, doesn't matter how good of a person you are, you have two people who are selfish at heart, who have lived their lives for themselves and for their needs, who now have to live selflessly. And that's the sacrificial love. But love is also a word that can be cheapened. Love is a word that can be used to describe that beautifully buttery deep dish crust with a single sausage patty on a Gino's East pizza. Or a smoked brisket. Or a pet. Loving a brisket is not the same as loving a spouse. Loving a pet is not the same as loving a child, although some pet owners may want to argue that. So what is Jesus saying? That all you need to do is love God with your all. All you need to do is love your neighbor as yourself. If we read the parable and we read it this way, and we put ourselves in the shoes of this lawyer. How many of us have been able to love God with all of our all? How many of us have been able to love our neighbor as ourself? And yet, if we could do the law, the problem is we can't. And the lawyer recognizes this. Paul argues in Galatians 3 that righteousness and life cannot be obtained by keeping the law because we all fail. Therefore, something better had to be inserted, and that better was Christ. So this neighbor love that Jesus is referring to could, if you could do it. But we can't do it. So what is this neighbor love that Jesus is talking about? We need to understand what it is. And we see something similar in John's epistle, 1 John. As believers, we are saved by the love of God for us, by Christ's death securing our forgiveness. 
Our love for God is a reflected love. We love him because he first loved us. In fact, to paraphrase John, 1 John 4.20, we can't say that we love God who we have not seen if we don't love our brothers and sisters whom we have seen. If we're not displaying the correct love towards those around us, we can't say that we love God. And so this leaves the lawyer in a pickle. And I'll admit that I found myself in this instance more than once. This lawyer has publicly challenged Jesus. And Jesus has turned the table on him. And now the lawyer has to defend himself. I've put myself in that position where I have publicly challenged someone and within two minutes realize they're right, I'm wrong, but what in my flesh do I do? I dig in my feet. I hold my ground because the embarrassment of admitting I was wrong is worse for me. And that's what this lawyer does. So what does he do? He then asks his second question. Verse 29, but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, and he gives this familiar parable, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go thou and do likewise. So this lawyer realizes he's in trouble. But he can save face if he can get Jesus with another question. If he can define neighbor the right way, then maybe I can say, I love my neighbor. If there is a neighbor that must be loved, the question that follows, is there then a non-neighbor whom I don't have to love? After all, Leviticus 8, 19, verse 18, where he quoted from, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, contextually, neighbor is used as a synonym for brother or people. So the rabbis taught, Leviticus 19.18 is saying that your neighbor is a fellow Israelite. Which then, if I have to love my neighbor, a fellow Israelite, if you're a Gentile, I don't have to love you. If you're a Samaritan, I don't have to love you. Some Jewish scholars took the limit of neighbor even further. Say neighbor could also apply to a Gentile who has become a proselyte, a Gentile who has become a Jew, but never a Samaritan or a foreigner. Another rabbinical saying says, if you come across a heretic, an informer, okay, a snitch, or a renegade, push them into a ditch and don't pull them out. So clearly saying there are people that 
Well, if you're pushing them into a ditch and leaving them there, you're not loving them. A group of radical Jews, the Ascends, required members of their community should hate all the sons of darkness, which included other Jews who weren't a member of that group. So here's what the lawyer is thinking. Neighbor is a very fluid term. And if I can nail down Jesus to say, this is what a neighbor is, then all of these other groups who believe differently were now going to have an issue with it. So he is trying to gotcha Jesus again. And Jesus responds with this parable. Perhaps the most famous parable. We have hospitals even today named after this parable. You have this man. We're not told who he was. But he is journeying down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is possible that this would have been a priest or a Levite. When we read the scriptures and we see that someone is going up to a location or down from a location, we can't read that in our American mindset. Okay, if I say I'm going up to Milwaukee, what does up mean? I'm going north. Or I'm going down to South Carolina. I'm going south. When we see that in the scriptures, up doesn't mean I'm going north. It means I'm going to a higher elevation. You always go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is at a higher elevation. Jericho is at a lower elevation. So this man is coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it's dropping in elevation. It's a 17-mile journey because of how winding the path is dropping 3,600 feet. So it's not an easy road. A rocky desert terrain. And as he's going, this man was set upon by robbers. Robbers easily hide around a corner. This man was beaten. His clothing was ripped off of him. And he was left half dead. He was basically left for dead. That's who we have. We don't know who this man is. But now the main players are introduced. And I try to read this thinking, how would Jesus' audience, who were Jewish, been listening to this? Knowing someone who had been beaten and left for dead on this road was probably very common. Okay, we get this. Somebody is been robbed, they've been beaten, they're left for dead. What comes next, Jesus? There came down a priest. Ah, a priest. This is one who is devoted to God. This is one who gives his life for godliness. He is highly esteemed by his audience. And this priest passes by and he sees this man laying dead. And what does he do? walks around to the other side and continues his journey to Jericho. Oftentimes, I think that we have this priest and then the Levite who does the same thing, and we paint them in our minds as these are bad people. How dare they? Jesus doesn't tell us why. But there are various possibilities that may not paint him as bad as we would like him to be. He's a priest in Jerusalem. What is the priest going to be doing in Jerusalem? Working. He's going to be on his feet all day sacrificing. Slicing the throats of lambs, goats, oxen, draining them. Or at the very least, just a part of the worship. He's been doing this all day. He's heading to Jericho. He's going home. Have we ever been 
on our way home after a long day, and we just want to get home. Stop pointing at me. And we see someone in need, and you know what? I just need to get home. Not a bad person. At least I'm not. That priest is, but I'm not. On top of that, he's a priest. He knows the law. This man is half dead. If as this priest is helping him, he dies, what does the law say about coming in contact with the dead man? That priest is now unclean. So what does he have to do? He has to turn around and go back up to Jerusalem. He's coming home from work, so he doesn't have a sacrificial animal with him. He's going to have to pay out of pocket for a sacrificial animal. And we know how the prices of sacrificial animals in Jerusalem were. Not only that, he's going to have to wait around for a priest to be available to perform the ceremony. It's going to cost him money. It's going to cost him time. And he's been working all day. He just wants to get home. That's a possibility. Maybe he had this thought, I'm not a doctor. I'm not first aid trained. I wouldn't know what to do with him anyway. Or maybe this thought, not my problem. And I have a few shekels, but I give it, if I give it to him, he's probably just going to buy drugs and alcohol. Maybe this one, those robbers may still be around. They may be waiting for someone else to help this man, and they'll jump him too. And I don't want that. I want to get home to my family. And when we think about those scenarios, have we ever found ourselves in those scenarios? That priest isn't such a bad guy anymore. We can empathize with him. We see a Levite. A Levite, the original audience, would have held him in the same esteem. This is one of the servants of God. This is someone who is devoted to serving God. And he does the same thing. He walks around this man. Very well could have been for the same reason. And at this point, the audience is hooked. They know that Jesus has attacked priests and Levites and the religious crowd before. And now they're ready for the hero of the story. And in their mind, they're thinking, okay, some random Jew, random Israelite is going to come and this common person is going to save the day. And what Jesus says next... is the twist of all twists. I don't know if you've ever read a book or watched a movie and you think you have it figured out. One of my favorite stories that I had the pleasure of reading in my high school English class was called The Most Dangerous Game, where you have a man get basically shipwrecked on an island he meets the one person who lives there, and he says, basically, I'm going to hunt humans because every other animal is easy for me to kill. And you're following the story, and you're in it, and at the very end, you think you have it figured out. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends. You have to read it yourself. But there's a twist. And that's exactly what Jesus does. These people are waiting. Okay, who's it going to be? Because we have to remember who this audience is and what Jesus says. A priest came and he walked aside. Ooh, bad priest. A Levite came and he turned to the other side. Ooh, bad Levite. And then came, yeah, a Samaritan. We have to understand this. A good Samaritan 
would be the equivalent of a good member of the PLO to a Zionist today. A good Samaritan would be the equivalent of a good member of the IRA. A good Samaritan would be a good Al-Qaeda or a good member of ISIS. Now let's get that thought process. Okay? There's a soldier wounded at battle. The battalion commander goes and sees that he's wounded and he walks around the other side. The chaplain comes and sees him wounded and he walks around the other side. All right, what private is going to come save the day? A member of ISIS comes and has compassion on him and takes care of him. What are you talking about, Jesus? That's, there's something wrong. The Samaritans were the hated enemies of the Jews. They were considered to be half-breeds. If we remember our history of the Samaritans, in 722 B.C., the northern ten tribes of Israel are taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Some stay behind and they intermarry with the foreigners that are brought in, something that the Levitical law says, don't do this. So Zerubbabel comes back in town in 536 B.C. with the Jews from the north, or southern tribes, and they're going to rebuild the temple. And these half-breed Samaritans say, hey, let us help you, and Zerubbabel says no. From that point on, these Samaritans oppose the building of the temple. In the time of Nehemiah, these Samaritans are trying to oppose and trying to stop the building of the wall. When John Hyrcanus I was ruler of Israel, before the Greeks came through, he took his troops and he burned down the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And to be fair, the Samaritans returned in like, or in kind. So it wasn't just a one-way thing. Okay, we have scattered all over our news today, there's a racist under every bush. This was racist, this was racist. The Jews and Samaritans were truly racist. They hated each other. Why? Because they were different ethnicities. And you have this individual who has something that the priest and the Levite did not. He has compassion. He doesn't look to identify, is this a Jew? Is this a Roman? Is this a Samaritan? He doesn't care. This is a human being who needs help. And his compassion doesn't just stop with, oh, I hope somebody comes along. That compassion is acted out in care. It leads to actions. He doesn't care if there are robbers hiding around the corner to jump him. He doesn't care about becoming ceremonially unclean, but he goes to this man and he cares for him. He bandages his wounds. Where does he find the material to make bandages? More than likely, he's tearing his own coat. He's pouring oil on these wounds. Why? To soften them. You know, as your wounds start to heal and start to scab, if you try to put something over them and treat them after that scabbing has started, it hurts worse. So this oil is to soften this, those scabs. He pours wine on them to be able to disinfect the wounds. Today, he slabs some neosporin on it. Hit him with a Band-Aid. He puts this man on his own animal and transports him to an inn. And he doesn't care how it's viewed. As he brings this man, this Jew, on a Samaritan's animal, this Jew who is dead, what is that going to look like to the Jewish innkeeper? This is not a culturally appropriate illustration anymore. But imagine a Native American riding into Dodge County with a scalped cowboy draped over his horse. The people of Dodge County aren't going to care what the backstory is. 
They're going to see the Native American. They're going to see the scalped cowboy. They're going to come to assumptions. They're going to take matters into their own hands. These Jews are going to see the Samaritan coming in with a Jew on his donkey that has been beaten and nearly dead. They're going to come to their own conclusions. This Samaritan doesn't care what other people are going to think about him. At the end, he continues to care for this man's needs. After the next night passes, he's ready to go on his way. And he gives the innkeeper two days' wages. That was a lot of money. His own money, money that was not guaranteed to ever come back to him. And what does he tell the innkeeper? When I come back, let me know if I owe you more. He has no promise of ever getting this money back. This is all coming at a great cost to him for someone who, if he met him on the street healthy, would have probably spit in his face. But this Samaritan doesn't care. Jesus tells this parable. And then he looks at the lawyer and he asks a question. Jesus says, which of these three then was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? You know, oftentimes we read that statement and we read that question and our mind reads it this way. Who is my neighbor? Because that's the question that the lawyer asked. And it would be very simple to take this application. My neighbor is everyone. So I need to treat everyone with love. But that's not the question that Jesus has asked. The question that Jesus is asking is literally in the original this. Who became the neighbor? You catch the difference? Not just, okay, everybody's my neighbor and I need to love everybody. But who actually became and acted like the neighbor? To be a neighbor is to show mercy to those who are in need. As this Samaritan did. Now we have in the scriptures a primary obligation to meet the needs of our own family. Okay, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. If someone does not provide for the needs of his own family, that person is worse than someone who is unsaved. As believers, we have an additional, a special obligation to help other believers in need. In Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul tells the church at Galatia, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. When we see brothers and sisters in Christ who have a need that we have the ability, the opportunity to meet, we do have an obligation to help them. And I think oftentimes that's where we... Stop. Any giving to help other people, I'm going to give to the church and that's it. That's where my obligation stops. My family, my church, that's it. But what does that first part of Galatians 6.10 say? As we have therefore opportunity... Let us do good unto all men. 
yeah, but if I give this guy who's obviously hungry on the side of the road five bucks to go buy a, you can't even buy a Happy Meal for five bucks, 10 bucks to go buy a Happy Meal, he's going to spend it on drugs and alcohol. He might. More often, he's going to actually use it for food. You don't have to give money to be a neighbor. The church where Stacy and I met and fell in love, there was a Duncan on the way to work, and I have a slight addiction. And we'd go to that Duncan on a regular basis, and in front of that Duncan, 90% of the time, was a homeless blind man. I didn't always have money. Okay, and please, I am not giving this illustration as a toot toot, Pastor Brian's awesome. No. But on the first of the month, I got paid. I felt like a million dollars. Second of the month, I paid bills, and I felt like negative million dollars. But that first of the month, I stop, I get myself my coffee, grab a donut for that guy who's always out there hungry. Take then that opportunity as you're giving him that donut to give him the good news. Or walk across the parking lot and get him a meal from Burger King. I don't know the number of times that we have helped people that way, just the unexpectedness that we get from a response from them. A few years back, we had a, both being teachers, Mod Pizza was doing, if you're a teacher, buy a pizza, you get a pizza for free. So we went to Mod and we bought our pizzas and we had lunch for the next day as well. We had our two free pizzas and we're driving back and we see somebody who's on the side of the road asking for food. So we pull into the parking lot and we go and we offer him one of the pizzas and he looks at it, he goes, I don't want that, I want money. Like, sorry, this is what we have. And he turns and walks away, and we start to drive off. And Stacy looks behind us, and there is somebody from the other side of the parking lot sprinting towards us. Are you really going to give that food away? I will take it. And being able to, okay, here's this pizza, and it's going to satisfy a physical need. But let me go ahead and take the opportunity to get a little bit of spiritual need met as well. You know, why are you doing this? Because God loved me and I'm going to show that love of God to my neighbors. I'm going to demonstrate that mercy. You know, we live in a day-to-day that is a very charged environment. You can't watch the news without seeing some sort of attack, some sort of claim against somebody, um, Regardless, Jesus in this parable is reminding us that not just everyone is our neighbor, but that we as Christians, because of the love that God gave to us, are to be a neighbor to everyone. Regardless of race, color, gender, class, or even political affiliation. God wants us to be a neighbor to the Republicans. God wants us to be a neighbor to the Democrats. And God wants us to be a neighbor to those who don't know which side of the aisle they're on. But we live in a day and age where if somebody is not with me, they don't agree with me, they are my enemy, I'm not going to show them that love. How much can, as a Christian, we have the opportunity to share the light of Jesus if we show them the love that we're supposed to and we become a neighbor unto them? This parable teaches us that we should show concern and compassion for all who are in need as we have the opportunity to do so. I remember going all the way back to 50 minutes ago, this parable about showing love and being a neighbor follows this command to pray that God is going to send laborers into the field of harvest.
by being a neighbor, we can be that laborer. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown to us, for giving your son to us to die on the cross for our sins because we cannot love you the way we ought. We cannot love our neighbors the way we ought. And therefore, we would have no hope of eternal life. But we thank you that when we were yet sinners, when we were your enemy, you loved us and sent your son to die for us. God, I pray that you would be with us tonight as we leave, tomorrow as we go about our day, this week as we have opportunities to be a neighbor to those in need. May we take the opportunity to not just meet physical needs where we can, but more importantly, to give the good news of the gospel and to try to meet the spiritual needs that we all have. Help us to be a neighbor to those around us. We ask these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen. All right. Any thoughts, comments? I know we went a little bit longer than usual tonight. Yes, Peggy. Absolutely. He came once in mercy and grace. His second coming is going to be in justice. Mm -hmm. Yes, mean. I was just thinking through it. So the priest and the uh, Levites are they not his neighbors, or they should have been a neighbor. They more than the Samaritan because they were the religious ones should have been a neighbor, but they did not act that way. And Jesus is using that to kind of poke at the lawyer. You're a religious expert. You tell me who you have been a neighbor to. And his response is, okay. He doesn't even say the Samaritan. He can't say the word Samaritan. The one who showed mercy, and what does Jesus say? You do that. You be the neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the question was asked this morning. You know, this is, uh, this is a parable. It's a fictive tale. But that man, let's say that man recovers. Let's follow the story. Is he going to view Samaritans differently? I hope so. 